Perfect. So, hi everyone. Welcome to another edition of Sport and History. I am your host for today, Connor Heffernan, and I'm very happy to be joined by Professor of History at Swansea University, Martin John. So, Martin, thank you very much um, for joining us. Are you surviving the heat at the minute? Um, I am, although this is Wales, so it's not quite as hot as other places. <laughs> I think that is the benefit. Like in Ireland, we're hitting like low 30s, and then we're looking at parts of southern England, and we're like, Oh, so that, that's what the heat wave is. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear um, you're not melting. So the trajectory of this podcast, and this is sort of linked into the 40th anniversary episodes that Casey Taylor has been doing, is to speak with people from different parts of sort of the BSSH and different parts of the sporting history world about their own research, their own research trajectories, and then how the BSSH intersects with maybe the historiography around their region. So I've been very lazy, but the plan is to eventually do two all-island um, podcast England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and Ireland. Um, notice how I said all Ireland. I'm being very uh, diplomatic. But on that point, Martin, can you maybe talk about your own trajectory because you've been a wonderful, um, like Renaissance historian, for want of a better phrase, in, in intersecting between cultural and sport and sporting and social histories. So can you maybe talk about your initial steps as a researcher and then how you've moved over the last you know several years into your new research topic. So I know. The first article, I think I'm right in saying you published was in the Sport Historian. It um, was. It was. So maybe we, we can start on that and then we can move on to everything from race and, and sport to Christmas, um, which wonderfully you cover all these things. Okay, yeah. Um, my PhD was on um, the history of football in South Wales before 1939, looking at what football tells us about class and communities um, and in particular national identity. Um, and out of that came a publication in the Sports Historian, which was about Fred Keener, who captained Cardiff City to, uh, to their victory in the 1927 uh, FA Cup. And it was looking at how in some ways he was a, a symbol or a metaphor for what happened to South Wales between the wars. Um, you know, sort of a brief flourishing in the 1920s and then a slow decline into unemployment, a sense of national um, and a national decline. And Keener's career was held up in this time um, as a symbol of that. You know, he started off this kind of great hero in Welsh society. Um, and by the 30s, he was ill, penniless, out of work. And people saw that as a symbol of what happened to wider Welsh society. Uh, so I published that in the Sports Historian. And, and when I was doing my PhD, BSSH was you know, a massive, it was a massive boost to me and, and support to me in, in many ways, as, you know, as lots of people will know, doing a PhD is a bit isolating. Um, I always felt like a lot of people studying sport that somehow I wasn't doing proper history. Um, and, you know, I did it in a, a relatively traditional history department at Cardiff University. Um, and, you know, it was, a, it was a little bit isolating um, in, in various different ways and but in BSSH I found you know a group of really like-minded scholars who gave me lots of feedback encouragement you know they were critical when they needed to be they were encouraging when they needed to be um, and you know people like Tony Mason, Gareth Williams, uh, Dick Holt in those early years were, were really important to me like senior people whose stuff I'd read and they would kind of say nice things about my work and offer me advice. And that was really good. But also finding kind of people who were at my level as well, you know, doing PhDs at the same time, people like Matt Taylor making, making you know, friends with them. It was really important. So BSSH was, it really kind of kickstarted me as a, as a scholar in, in many ways. And I made kind of, that sounds a bit naff, but I made lifelong friends for it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's important to be sentimental about these things. So I'm interested when you were doing your PhD, like what is the historiographical landscape around sport in Wales? Like, are you one of the first to look at it? Is there anyone you can draw on, or is this like you really are striking out? Um, there was there was work on rugby, perhaps inevitably. Um, rugby dominates um, sort of the cultural landscape in Wales in many ways, but it wasn't that wasn't although rugby was all around me, it, it wasn't the Wales that I knew in some ways. You know, all my friends were all kind of football fans. Um, and, you know, I'm growing up in rural West Wales, although everybody was obsessed by the national rugby team, you know, they were also obsessed with football. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and in some ways, the motivation behind my PhD was a little bit to show that actually football has a really strong place in, in, in Welsh culture um, and has been marginalised slightly by Wales's attempts to portray itself as, as different and as a distinct nation. You know, as a, as a stateless nation, Wales has and had and still has to some extent a bit of a chip on its shoulder and is desperate to show, you know, it's different, it's unique, it's a nation. And kind of betraying the idea that the popular game in, in, in Wales was rugby was a, was a way of doing that because it made it different mm-hmm. um, to England. So in some ways, my, 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 my PhD was, was motivated by a desire to show that, that football had a place within Welsh culture. Um, and, you know, Welsh history was a small area. There aren't many historians working on it. Um, but there was, you know, there were a few really good things on, on kind of Welsh rugby. Uh, notably by Gareth Williams, that, that gave me gave me almost like a, a framework to kind of investigate um, and, and and to test. Yeah, and uh, uh, on that because obviously, so you're doing soccer and the sort of rugby landscape to a certain extent. I, my own PhD, I did physical culture and like a sporting uh, landscape. So in Ireland, there was a rich vein of sport history to choose from, and I was doing physical culture, which actually didn't really. Uh, fit fit into that literature too nicely. So I'm interested then in being in that traditional history program, how important was it to wear different hats? So what I mean by that is, you know, in my physical culture work, I was doing gender, I was doing popular health, I was doing nationalism, I was doing military histories, educational histories, because you couldn't do like a strict physical culture PhD because it didn't, it wasn't, I, I, I say relevant in air quotes, like no one was ever that harsh but they just didn't see the maybe value in studying it in and of itself so when you're doing the sport history in a traditional history program did you have to link out to sort of put on these different hats to use a strange metaphor well i mean i never saw myself as a as a sports historian really i guess i always saw myself as a historian and you know i would still argue sports history is not a sub-discipline or anything yeah. it, it's a you know it's a field of study um, and i think sports historians and i've you know i've done this a lot myself have overly worried about you know their place in the overall field um you know there are advantages to defining a subfield and to kind of you know saying here's a group of scholars who work on work on sport but the trouble is if you overly define a field i think you can become maybe procreal is not quite the right word but you can kind of be a little bit cut off mm-hmm. um from from what's happening in the wider field and you know i i I I think my work really benefited you know, as a PhD student from being around people who were studying the same kind of questions about you know class and identity about things like that, but from completely different different perspectives. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean I was totally influenced by by different kinds of his by different kinds of history, but I, I think most historians are, and I think when sports history becomes too defined and only looks at kind of studies of sport from, say, other disciplines, you know, sociology and stuff, and and stops seeing itself as part of, you know, a wider field of history, then I think it it suffers. But having said that, there's a lot to be gained from looking at other disciplines as well, you know, and and all historians, regardless of what they're they're studying, should be looking at how other disciplines approach their their topic. And, you know, I certainly learned from from sports sociology and, and sports scientists as well, and my first permanent job was in a sports department. Mm. Um, and that was quite a culture shift. But, you know, I, I think I did learn a lot. Well, I know I learned a lot from being around people studying sport from completely different disciplines. You know, it, yeah. it, make, it makes you think about what you're doing. So I think, you know, the more open we are to, to different perspectives, the different influences, the better the work we produce, hopefully. <laughs> That was asterisk and hopefully. Um, but actually on that, because I'm in a similar position in that my first job was a kinesiology department in the US, which effectively, you know, the study of body movement, sports science to history of sport. Now I'm in a sociology of sport department. And I know Katie Taylor, who's also hosting some of these guest episodes. She's in sociology of sport at the minute. How did you find that transition? Because for me, I felt like I was going back to undergrad when I was comparing, you know, I was preparing my notes for the first years because I'm I'm familiar with these theories but then to actually have the mastery to teach it uh was, was quite a shock I'm not going to lie 
Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was an intellectual jump, mm-hmm. but but teaching is teaching in some ways, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's 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 about communicating ideas. It's about listening to the students as much as telling the students stuff. Um, so although you know, although there was a challenge, it was something I I, I really enjoyed and you know teaching essentially sports history to people who'd not done a level history maybe often not done gcse history getting them to think about why the past was important um you know was 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 a really enjoyable challenge but i also enjoyed teaching kind of the bits of sociology and cultural mm-hmm. studies that i did as well um, and like i said i think that did feed in to my research i think i did learn from those different perspectives um, you know, and I ended up writing or publishing something about, you know, the value of what history can gain, sports history can gain from engaging with these different disciplines. I went through this little period of thinking, if I just write about Wales, only people in Wales will read what I'm doing. So I thought I should write these kind of slightly polemical opinion pieces about the state of sports history and you know the relationship between sports history and sports studies, partly just to get, to be honest, to be cynical, to get noticed. <laughs> Uh, and you know sticking them in american journals and, and stuff like that so i tried to be very strategic about what i was publishing really on yeah i'm still i'm still in that phase where i'm like if i just publish something criticizing everyone that'll, that'll get a name out <laughs> yeah it's um, putting ideas out there isn't there last important thing yeah i think i think that's the thing and as i said like i think we're sort of a mongrel bunch in sport history and i think that needs to be embraced because people come in or gender historians or class historians who are looking at history of ideas in some cases, history of bodily movement, performance studies, whatever the case may be. And I think that, that sort of chaos and messiness probably behooves the field rather than dilutes it. Um, yeah. But back to you. Um, so I am interested, you know, you say you go through this phase of sort of, you know, try, trying to break out from doing Welsh history, but then you very quickly, because obviously I academically start you um, before this, um, you very quickly break into sort of, it looks like two different roles, which one is looking at sort of Welsh history from a social and class lens, while also doing sport history at the same time. And is that something that was a conscious decision or is it just, as I said, you are looking at these areas regardless of the content or subject matter? I mean, I thought my first postdoc I had two postdocs after my PhD. My, and neither were about sport, they were Welsh politics in different ways. One was about the Alavan disaster in 1966, where 144 people, most of whom were children, died in a, in a coal mining accident. Um, and then I had one looking at the history of local government um, in, in Wales. So I'd always, you know, mm-hmm. very early on kind of published and worked in, in, in different areas just because that's where there was some work. You know, and I applied for those jobs and, and, and got them. And um, so when I so when I got my first permanent job, you know, teaching in a sport department, I'd already had some kind of background in publishing and, and, and doing more general Welsh history. And much as while I loved, really loved where I worked at, at what was then called St. Martin's College and is now the University of Cumbria, I loved working there. It was a really nice group. Oh, I love this. Lancaster was a beautiful city. I did kind of miss Wales and, um, you know, I kind of was just like to have kids and have a family. I wanted them to be brought up in Wales. So I, so I still kind of ticked away at doing bits about Wales that weren't necessarily sport as a way of thinking, well, if a job comes up in Wales, I want to, I want to go for it. Um, and then when I got um, a history lectureship at, at Swansea, um, you know, I, I I consciously started publishing again on things that weren't sport mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, sort of try and establish a reputation as a historian of Wales rather than a historian of sport. Um, so again, you know, there were sort of, there were career reasons, you know, behind these things. And I, I remember my job interview, the, the pro VC saying, don't you do too many different things? Shouldn't you specialize a bit more? You know, in an interview situation, you turn that into trying to strengthen. strength. You know, I've got yeah, breadth, yeah. breadth of experience and breadth of breadth of perspectives, and they all feed into each other and, and help you develop as an academic. But in some ways, he was he was right that you kind of become, 
you know, a bit of, you know, you can be a bit too much of a generalist in, in times. Um, um, yeah, so I started writing about writing about whales, partly just to kind of, you know, develop my reputation that I wasn't just a sports historian. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, the, the first, when I moved to Swansea, the first big book, well, the first book I did was a big general history of whales, like yeah. post whales. And again, you know, I wanted to write something very general. This is social, cultural, political, economic history of, of, of post-war whales, partly to say, well, I want to write something that regardless of what you're working on, you're going to have to read. You know, it was it was strategic in the sense I want, wanted to kind of have something that was highly cited and kind of would, would get yourself known. Mm-hmm. And uh, just uh, as an aside, my answer to that same question, which is don't you do too much? I call myself an academic magpie. <laughs> I get distracted by shiny things. Yeah, and I think most academics are like that. And, you know, we, we're we all guilty sometimes of starting the next project before we finished one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a lot to be said for doing different things because you do genuinely kind of make connections that otherwise you wouldn't make and you bring in new perspectives. Um, but the, the the problem is that sometimes you feel, or, or certainly I feel, like I don't know some of these topics as well as I should. You know, I'm writing about 19th century education at the moment, and I'm still getting my head around about some of the really basic stuff about how schools work. I don't know if that's just because I haven't spent 20 years reading about education, or actually just because it's really difficult to know that schools don't exist. But we all have imposter syndrome, don't we? We always worry, oh, you know, is, do I not understand this in the way that other people do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, that's what a reviewer too is for. That's what I was told earlier on. They're like, if you have imposter syndrome or not, you'll find out very soon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so your first book is that sort of big, general, socio-cultural, political history of Wales. There are several books then, um, sort of co-edited or, or single author, looking at sport and society or soccer and society in Wales, and then even say the edited collection you did, you know, on Swansea, was that, you know, you'd, you'd establish yourself more and you're more comfortable going into those topics or is it just that was the next research project, you know, sort of ticked off? Yeah, well, the two sport books were, were, were well, I was at Lancaster. So one was oh, sorry, okay. PhD. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was, it was football in Wales. And then I wrote a general history of sport in Wales, quite a short one, like 50,000 words. And so they, again, with, I suppose, the demands. Um, and since then, I haven't written a book on sport. Um, it may become more article, article-driven. Um, so I sort of kind of went away from it to write a general book of Wales, but then I sort of came back um, and started doing stuff about race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at the state of British sports historiography, in many ways, the big topics have been done. Yeah. And um, this is something um, I think both Nash and the BSSH have talked about, which is, you know, do we need more studies using the same sort of frameworks or is it time to actually take stock and critique existing frameworks rather than I'm going to do a you know a class analysis of yeah. wherever you know wherever the case may be rather than to we actually take two steps back and start to dismantle rather than continue lines of narrative yeah. I would think you know if you're starting out on a PhD now it's quite hard to find a big topic that hasn't been that hasn't been done you know so you are to, you are down to reassessments or kind of new case studies regional case studies national case studies etc but i think race is one mm-hmm. that hasn't really been done you know there's not i don't think there's really a big book about sport and race in the uk in the way that there is you know stuff in the states you know there's obviously studies of, of race in different sports mm. but but you know a, a, a big one um and you know there's a there's, there's a general issue with the historiography of, of race in, in Britain that for a long time it was about white attitudes to race, you know, and it was about racism and kind of, you know, controls on, on immigration and race relations legislation. And there wasn't enough about the perspective of, of people of colour, the experiences of people of, of, of colour. And, you know, within wider historiography, that's 
that that has started to change in the last kind of decade or so. There's some there's some great books looking at say the you know the black experience in Britain, but we haven't really done that in sport so much. Mm. Um, I think it's quite an interesting thing because as I said there are some wonderful case studies that are done, but like sport, unfortunately, can be one of the most visceral arenas for attitudes around race, be it team selection, be it narratives around matches or bouts or prize fights or hooligans and stands, whatever the case may be. So it's an interesting sort of lacuna at the moment because there isn't that general textbook that I could say to a student, oh, read that. Yeah. And away you go. Yeah. And there's a real opening there for someone to write that kind of that big history um, of race and sport that looks at it from different perspectives that that really brings in, you know, where the where the wider historiography and the wider kind of social studies, social sciences, um, you know, positions on on race are. Um, but it's 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 trying to get that balance between, you know, obviously it is important to look at racism in in sport, but if you if if the whole history of race and sport becomes about racism, you end up kind of betraying that misses a trick. Yeah, you betray people as kind of victims rather than as kind of agents. You know, who had, who undoubtedly suffered from racism, but also kind of negotiated it um, in in different ways, and often built meaningful lives and careers. And that one of the last articles I published about Eddie Paris, who played football between the wars, and in 1930 became the first black player to be capped um, by by Wales. You know, sort of 40 years before England capped a black player. The whole point of that article was in some ways to show that his career wasn't just about race. Race was obviously part of his story and it it it, it did frame his story and his experiences. But he was a dad, he was a yep. you know, he was a husband, he was a friend, he was a man, he was a professional football player, you know, as as well as being a person of of, of mixed race trying to survive in Britain. And I presume this is the this is an article that I actually assigned from a class this, uh, last semester. The race and the archival silences around athletes, because yeah. okay, first, so this is something I actually assigned in class Great. to in our lecture on race to say okay, race isn't racism because these are sociologists, sports students. When they think race and sport, a lot of the examples they would have given would have been say the Euro, the final of the Euros, and the abuse of players following you know England's failure in the penalty shootout, which is great because they're consciously aware and they talk about Marcus Rashford and all these things but getting them to think back and think about you know how do we actually uncover what race means in different time periods and how it's not just racism obviously it's a big part of the story but also constructs of race and we paired it with the history of white people which is a great book um, to start getting thinking about the the boundaries of this but I'm wondering you know as someone who again if we're saying like academic magpies how, how did you find that transition from doing, say, that social, cultural, political study of Welsh history and then of sport in Wales to moving into race and sport? Because this isn't, as you say, especially the approach that you took by looking at archival sources, like it actually was a really new and novel way of looking at it. Because we do great case studies, we look at racial depictions of touring sides in Britain, etc. But those sort of historically, historiographically led considerations around archives hasn't really been done yet you know in Britain. yeah i mean there's some great there's some great stuff on it, it not in a sporting context i mean there's yeah, a, there's yeah. a writer called caroline caroline Bress, bressy who's written some really good stuff some some fantastic stuff about how you can ex- explore the black experience and the challenges of doing that i was, re- I was really really influenced by her work um i did find it difficult to be honest making a shift partly thinking Am I should I even be doing this? You know, mm-hmm. to, to, as as a white scholar, do I have the right to? You know, it's not my history. It's, it's not my history. Mm-hmm. Do I have the right to do it? Um, and I still sort of slightly uncomfortable with that. And I, you know, I, I I don't know. But there weren't other people doing it. So, you know, if I hadn't, it would have been a while before maybe anyone else looked looked at that. So I was always uncomfortable about that. Mm. It's obviously there's so much scholarship on race and kind of making sure that you are familiar with it. Um, you know, it is difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that challenging. And I think early on, I was probably quite naive about some of the 
some of the things, you know, some of the ways I approached it, some of maybe the language I used in, in writing. Um, a, a piece that Matt Taylor and I published about boxing and race that looked at um, how boxing had initially had a, had a color bar in Britain, had abolished that after the 1940s, and then looking at the ways the sport had reacted to the growth of immigration in the 50s and the 60s and the experiences of black boxers within Britain in the 50s and 60s. And we wrote an article of that, which I'm really proud of, but it was quite a journey. And the first, the first time we submitted it, we submitted it to a big history journal. It, it got panned, but it got panned in a really constructive way. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reviewers wrote like four pages of, of comments on it, which was which was going way beyond the call of duty. But he or she made that article mm -hmm. because they kind of pointed out where we'd been naive. They pointed out where we were making too many assumptions. You know, they they, they pointed out the challenges, some of the challenges of writing about race that I think we knew about, but maybe we hadn't been we hadn't explicitly tackled. We've been too subconscious about. So you know, it's difficult. You know, race is obviously an incredibly emotive issue, and you know, stepping into it is 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 difficult as a as, as a scholar if you're not fully grounded in that. So yeah, it was it was it, it it was one of the I think it's one of the hardest things that I've written written about, and I hope I did the, the topics justice. Um, and I hope it's okay for me as a white scholar to, to write about that. But well. I I was going to say one of the things that I think from the sociology in sport and just social sciences in general that I've actually thought we should actually steal that as a discipline is like reflexivity statements. So something I'm working on with another scholar at the minute in Ulster is Paralympic powerlifting. And obviously, like I'm, I'm not um, an athlete with a disability, but I'm recounting the experience of athletes with disabilities in Ireland, like having something like a reflexivity statement where you're able to say, and sort of put down on paper these sort of emotional, um, I suppose, tensions that can arise when you're dealing with race or disability or accessibility or inclusivity and acknowledging one's privilege, acknowledging these things. It's not that, you know, it's not one of these things that you throw out and you say, well, well, I have this, this protects me from anything. But I often think it's something that other fields perhaps do better when they're thinking about their own position in approaching certain topics. Yeah, and I... There's almost there's a wider issue there for sports history that, that we often kind of talk about these things, but we, you know, we haven't necessarily been been good at kind of reflecting on to what extent it, it's shaped our work. I mean, everybody writes about the history of sport, loves sport, yeah, and I I I do think that that means a lot of our work, maybe not exaggerates, but you know, it places the important it places the emphasis on where sport is important. Mm -hmm. And you know we haven't maybe we haven't maybe kind of studied or, or noticed enough the fact that lots of people don't like sport and didn't care about sport and and sometimes sport a negative you know you know we've written about the the, the dad who who watched who went every Saturday afternoon to football and we kind of made a case for how they that's an integral part of working class culture and we haven't maybe thought about well what did that mean for you know the people at home that he was leaving behind you know and did that kind of neglect his family and, and stuff like that and sometimes that's just hard to do because of sources but have we looked enough for those sources because we've been so keen to kind of emphasize the positive role that sport had in working class culture um and is that because of who we are you know and because you know we're we're sports fans and we're looking at them from certain points of as someone who was really into Welsh football and who wanted to show that Welsh football was just as important as Welsh rugby, did that mean I exaggerated to some extent or I was blind to the bits where it wasn't? So, yeah, reflexivity is really important. Um, and that history as a whole isn't good enough at it. Um, but I think, you know, in sports history, there is maybe a particular issue. But we do reflect on the state of our subject and our discipline. Yeah. And we get you know, we lack confidence about that in a way that, um, you know, a lot of disciplines don't. Yeah, and it, it is funny, as I said, because we have sort of implicitly a gatekeeping in the sense that everyone who is in this loves it. Like, and even when we're critical of it, it's from a place of, 
really enjoying it. Like, I mean, from it's very hard to look at anyone who studies tennis who doesn't play or watch it on a regular basis or weightlifting or football or rugby, whatever the case may be. And it's funny, something that I failed on repeatedly, like I studied the history of physical activity and physical education, like physical education for more people than not was a pain in the ass. Like it was a punishment, you know, and if you had a drill instructor, it came with beatings, it came with ostracization, it came with body image issues, it came with all these things. But I just don't look at it. I look at the, this is, you know, even when it's problematic, it's looking at, okay, but yes, but, you know, it's always yes, but it's not looking at that flip side of the coin, which is you say, it's such a big part of sport in general, even if, you know, if it is the time away from friends or social commitments, if it's the people who actually don't care when a World Cup's on, they just care that, you know, everyone's crowded around the telly or they can't get to work or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, So it is a funny sort of blind spot within the field because we're all fans to, you know, to a certain extent, writing about the game or activity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, right back at the beginning of sports history, you know, people talk about fans with typewriters and stuff. And, you know, there was this effort to kind of distinguish between sort of the amateur, the so-called amateur sports historian who was just writing about things that happened and the academic his, his history and you know, the early days of BSSH, when I first like, got involved, that was there was a real, that, that there was always this concern, you know, is it academic enough? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the change of the name of the journal from the sports historian to sport in history was meant to be kind of, you know, a very deliberate statement that this is history, you know, and it's using sport to study history rather than that it's just being about sport. Um, so, you know, there was, there was always this, some reflexivity but maybe not quite in the right way. You know, I think we, we overemphasize the importance of sport, partly to kind of convince other historians that what you're studying is important. Yeah, and it, it's funny, something I love sharing with students is, um, I can't even remember the year. Do you remember the University of Cambridge had a, a conference? It's like, why haven't historians studied sport? Yeah. And just the like moral outrage that it cost among sporting historians um again it's a fun way of showing students sort of behind the curtain of the people who are writing the books and the articles and different things but i think yeah it is interesting to reflect on that yeah. sort of anxi- anxiety to prove the the value of a certain topic yeah and i, th- I think the fact that you know people can ask those questions and sort of ignore like you know sort of 30 40 years of writing you know is partly maybe our own fault you know we have you know we have of you know, journals like Sport and History are important, but if unless you also publish in other journals, you know, then, then maybe the work doesn't get noticed enough. And, you know, I don't know why we don't do that, whether that's confidence. I don't think it's journals rejecting stuff necessarily. Um, but, you know, I, it's always difficult to know where to send a piece. I mean, I recently did a piece on Muhammad Ali and British reactions to Muhammad Ali. And I was like, oh, do I send this to a British journal? You know, who do I want this to be for? Is, it, is this, am I, do I want to speak to kind of historians of race? Do I want to speak to general British historians? Uh, but I hadn't published in a sports journal for ages. And I kind of thought Americans might be interested in this. So I sent it to International Journal of History of Sports. But I think it kind of disappeared a little bit. And sometimes you publish these things and they, I don't mm-hmm. know. Or do read them but they sometimes sometimes you you publish something and it sort of seems to disappear into a void yeah and actually on that because um at the conference in august we started to do like workshops for phd and ecr um members and one of the things that i'm always keen to stress is you know like sort of sport and history is always going to be your home you know it's always going to be your home base but you need to branch out because you know similar to you obviously not on the same track record like I submit pieces to say a gender and history or social history and medicine or Irish historical studies, sort of different fields, slightly bigger reputations to, you know, to a certain extent. But I always find that the feedback I get there, even when it's very critical and oftentimes character destroying, it's in like, it, it helps to see it in a different light because it is people who are viewing sport from a different angle, but then also you're reaching different audiences with it and sort of pulling them back in. So was that something that sort of you consciously did or just sort of evolved? Because I know... Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, I, you know, universities also, of course, have 
Well, there's also that hanging over us. Um, and you know, I I check. Sorry, if I'm going off in the background. No, no, you're going to burn. Um, I I'm our ref lead at Swansea University for history, so I'm constantly thinking about the ref and kind of how things are graded and audiences, you know. And I do research mentoring for colleagues, which is all about you know, how do you bring out the significance of what you're doing? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you kind of, you know, how do you write for ref? You know, how do you make something clear that this is significant beyond beyond the field? So, yeah, I'm always totally aware of where you publish, but it's not just about where you publish, it's about how you write as well, you know, and, you know, you can you can get something which is really good and really significant and publish it in a, in, in a sports journal. It's just whether people notice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, publishing in mainstream journals, you know, I think it's important partly so people notice sport, but also you do get a different kind of feedback and having feedback from people who aren't necessarily looking at it from a sports perspective is really useful. And that's maybe the kind of the limitations of those sport journals, not just sport nationally, all of them. You know, they tend to send things to review to, to other historians of sport. Um, and so you, there's almost like this common assumption that sport is important before you even start it. Hmm. Um, and, you know, whereas when you send something to a mainstream journal, you know, they do hassle you about, well, have you shown enough why this matters? Yeah, and I think that was the thing that took me back the most when I first submitted something to a non-sporting journal where they're like, well, is this actually significant? I was like, it's physical culture. Of course it's significant. Yeah. But the, I think that but that was such an important um, like temporary roadblock for me. It was like, oh, okay, I actually have to go back two steps and like establish the significance, establish what it meant in a broader field before diving straight in because i know my own work there's often the distinction if it's a non-sporting journal it's the same sort of um background not every time but you know i have to establish everything show significance etc where if it's a sports journal i can just sort of dive in uh, and keep going and i mean one thing that does upset me a little bit about kind of academia is the way we've become so obsessed by all of this and you know there is still a place in research culture for doing stuff that maybe isn't all that important and doesn't change how we think about things, but actually it's just interesting. You know, a new case study that maybe says the same as all the other case studies, but wow, who would have thought that this sport existed in this place? You know, something like that. And, you know, what one, I mean, Ref has had many negative, negative impacts upon academia, but one of them is, you know, the way it has, discouraged those kind of you know very localized studies sometimes it's discouraged book reviewing as well you know i I think sports history like many fields of history doesn't have necessarily a vibrant culture of reviewing books you know and debating books you know we tend to Mm -hmm. just write book reviews that are quite nice now because you don't want it's a small field you don't want to kind of be too rude about people Um, but that kind of vigorous debate doesn't really happen a- a- anymore because you know writing those kind of reviews takes time and hardly anyone's got any time anymore so and it is funny from an irish um, perspective the last time we had like a real do between two historians is like 12 or 15 years ago like it's just funny because you know as a student when i started to study sort of the sporting historiography as part of my phd i probably learned more from two academics going back and forth in, in that way than I did from reading standalone articles. So it's interesting how institutionally we're, we're sort of all put in the one lane now to the detriment of those broader yeah. discussions. I mean, I suppose there's a vibrant debate over where football came from. I mean, it's maybe a vibrant debate amongst a small number of people. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think it's missed the point in some ways. But, um, but you yeah, know, I suppose there are still some debates. The other thing that worries me about where sports history is, is I don't think we place enough emphasis on kind of doing non-academic stuff. That that is slowly changing, and it's certainly not just a problem of sports history. I think it's a problem of academia. Um, But kind of, you know, engaging with a wider public, you know, sort of doing the academic, doing the kind of the impact stuff based around, you know, publishing. You tend to publish something and then you move on, you know, and it 
it, for me, that's like a band recording an album and then deciding not to tour it, just going straight on to the <laughs> album. You've got to promote what you do because you want yeah. people to read that. And I don't think we we spend enough time on kind of interpreting what we do, writing different versions of our research for popular audiences. You know, and obviously there is some work on that and kind of the sporting heritage network, if I've given it the right title, is really important and has done some great stuff. But there's much more we can we can do there because sport you know, sport does has real potential of bringing people in mm. to you know to, to thinking about the past because you can use the sport to grab people's attention and then make them think okay well what does this mean what does this suggest about what it means to be Welsh or Irish or working class or a man or a woman you know you can use sport as a way of opening up broader questions not just amongst academics but about the wider public as well. Um, and we haven't necessarily been pushed that enough. Just like we haven't done enough TV documentaries. When was the last time there was a great TV documentary about sports history? And, and I don't know why broadcasters don't really push that either. You know, why aren't they looking for these stories? Because they are out there. It's not just up to us to kind of to, to push them to broadcasters. Well, it's funny because I know last year, for me, I know one of the most enjoyable um, things was Fiona Skillen and her PhD student, Lauren Beatty, have done a wonderful documentary on women's uh, golf in Scotland. Yeah. And just looking at that and saying, geez, we should all be doing yeah, exactly. different versions of it. And I, here's a question, though, that I'm interested in, in your response. I know when I was starting my PhD and even starting out um, in America, I was told to cut back on writing for blogs, writing for other websites, you know, writing for popular um, sites, going on podcasts, and as I say, sort of cutting up the cake in different, in different sizes for different audiences because there was a fear that that wasn't like it's it wasn't academic or you know there seems to be a tension especially around sport between the sort of amateur historian and I don't mean that derogatively and then what's happening in academia my point was well, like people are actually interested in this more sometimes than they are in like you know in other forms of history like if I wrote a popular article on education in Ireland probably wouldn't get that many views if I did a popular article with a hook you know a catchy title you know, why we had to do laps for PE, for example, yeah. there'd be more of an interest in that. So do you think that's part of that sort of this drive for? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, public engagement is really, really important. And I think, you know, we have a moral, we have a moral duty to do it. And I don't want to, you know, like, you know, as you said, with Fiona's example, you know, there is some really good stuff happening. Yeah. I don't want to pretend there's not, but I don't, I don't think academia full stop places enough emphasis. Um, on this um, and there are reasons for that kind of you know the culture of academia ref promotion panels etc etc um, but ultimately you know if you work in a university you are directly or indirectly funded by the taxpayer and you know you shouldn't just be talking to other academics you should be talking to you should be talking to the wider public um, and we just don't do enough of that across, you know, it's not just sports history, it's a wider issue. Um, and, you know, in the coming, well, it's not coming, it's already started, you know, the, the hostile culture towards the arts and humanities, you know, it's in our self-interest to kind of get what we do out there and to show why people it's, in, to show people why it's important and to show how people are interested in, in yeah. these topics. So I just always think it's such a shame when academics only speak to academics. Yeah, and I think that's something that probably because of precarity might hope might change in one sense because people now have to market to you know inside academia and then sort of outside academia as well, and there's a there's a difficulty in that. Yeah, and the you know the the challenges of being a, a young or an ECR scholar today are you know a huge that you know the, it's not just the job market; it's the way you're expected to do everything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that is really difficult, you know, and you get people like me saying, oh, we need to be doing more of this, we need to be doing more of that, and I'm probably not not helping. Um, but I think, you know, when you when you sit on job panels and, and you sit on promotion panels, you kind of, you know, we need to be kind of not expecting too much of people, um, and we need to, you know, I think be respecting people who have a small number of really good publications but put a lot of time and effort into telling people about those things mm. and we should be expecting people to go on to the next big project straight away you know like i said that is that would be like a band making a record and then not worrying if anybody heard it going straight on to record the next one 
Yeah, which um, I have been guilty of on more than one occasion. Um, but being conscious, oh, we all are. We all are. You yeah. know, and I'm, you know, I'm such a hypocrite on these things, but. <laughs> So, being conscious of your time, um, there are two sort of last things I wanted to ask about. One was just, I suppose, the sort of sport scene in Wales at the moment, because I can tell you, you know, from an Irish perspective, um, sport history Ireland has died um, a death, for want of a better phrase. There are scholars individually doing different bits of work and really impactful and good pieces of work, but there's sort of a reliance now on the BSSH for that sport history form being ignorant of the welsh situation like what what is that landscape like because i know you're not yeah i mean it's probably very similar i mean welsh history is a small field full stop anyway, yeah. you know um and i think you know i wouldn't recommend anybody kind of you know has their primary identity as a welsh sports historian um because you know you're going to be one of a very 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 small very small group um you know there aren't really many welsh historians out there either mm-hmm. um so yeah it's not a, there are you know, a handful of people working on it in different you know different ways um there has been you know some good uh daryl leeworthy did a really nice book about the sporting environment a few years ago it's really that's really important and it's really well illustrated as well and that's a good example of how you can do something that's academically informed but reaches a wider public um you know so that there's bits and bobs going on there but i yeah, probably wouldn't even go as far as saying there is a kind of a welsh sports history scene certainly yeah, not in yeah. academic sense there's there's people working on it in a popular way but not there's not really an academic scene uh yeah so that's that's again why bssh is important um because it does provide that freight that wider framework of support of kind of encouragement kind of it's a place where people can get ideas um, you know, I've just got a new PhD student started who's doing stuff about kind of rural West Wales and sport there in the 19th century. You know, I've been telling you, go, go to BSSH, join BSSH, you know, you'll, you'll find a group of like-minded people who will really help you. So yeah, BSSH, you know, has a really important role. And as someone who's kind of taken a step back from it a little bit in recent years, it's really interesting to kind of look in, look in on it and see how it's evolved and the really pleasing thing, I think, is how much more women's history there is now. Mm. You know, when I started off, you know, the conference was really, was, was virtually entirely male, and certainly the topics were, were yeah. virtually entirely male, and it's become much more gender diverse now, uh, which is, you know, which is really important. And, you know, I think some of the most exciting, important work in British sports history in the last few years has been about women's history. Yeah, and actually... On that, one of the delights, so I've been helping with the conference organization for the last two years, three, three years. Um, we no longer have to do women and panels to the same extent that, like for my first conference was like 2010. And, you know, you would have, okay, there's three three scholars studying women's history or even gender history and, and sport. Okay, we'll put them on this panel here. Now, sometimes it, it happens because of a niche within, you know, if there's th- three women who are all doing water polo, you might... Uh, phrase like that but now you have that sort of difference and I think my last question before asking is there anything we want to plug is you know looking from the outside in you know in terms of future directions in the BSSH like is there any areas you think would be good to go down or need to go down like before to give you a second answer um, like there's currently a sort of reflexive moment about looking at people of color looking at accessibility looking at inclusivity within sport and like, you know, Sam Brady has done some wonderful things on wheelchair sport. We're pushing more community sport and sport in schools. So there is work being done, but I think it's always interesting to stop and reflect and think, you know, even from a broader historiographical perspective, what are the next areas? And I think we've already said race in sport and a, a deeper dive into what race means, because it's not just racism is obviously one. Yeah. Was there any other you think are? Yeah, I mean, race, race is the big one. Um... those big kind of collective media moments Mm. sort of you know when sport crosses the boundary out of just being about people who like sport into bringing in wider audiences you know the sort of the 66 world cup 2012 olympics and stuff um you know have have they been fully 
probed and tested. Maybe they have. I'm not sure they have, though. Um, I think there's potential there. The media archives are, are very hard to get into. You know, TV, the BBC, as part of its centenary, is slowly opening up, you know, some of the stuff it, it holds. Um, you know, and obviously there's some, re- there's some really good stuff about the BBC and, and sports, the history of sports media. But I think as a source, there is stuff hidden away in sound and broadcast archives that we haven't really touched yet that will tell us things about sport in, in lots of different contexts. So it's not really a topic, but it's a source maybe. Yeah, but it's an area. Yeah, similarly with oral history. You know, there's been some great oral histories, but I'm always surprised that we don't do more oral history in sport. Yeah, and I think that's something... Yeah, we're, we're seeing glimpses at the moment, but I think that's probably something in the next few years that will actually you know, hopefully become one of those explosive areas. But on that note, is there anything sort of to plug um, from your own perspective? I don't mean that to be cynical, but I just mean, you know, if you're to direct people to your latest research, you published actually a really good article in Gender and History on Baldness um, and Masculinity, which I actually loved reading because um, I think that's an air. But I, lo- I love sort of, fun inroads into or different inroads into much deeper sort of identity topics um but is there anything coming down the tracks that you want to talk about um i'm really proud of the stuff i did recently on race um sort of you know the the piece i did with matt taylor in in the historical journal the piece by eddie paris in 20th century british history and piece about like i said about british reactions to muhammad ali which is in international journal history and sport um, you know, I, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but to me, they're really good pieces. Um, that I'm really proud of. Um, so yeah, if you, you know, if you're interested in race and 20th century Britain, um, have a look at those. And if they're rubbish, tell me as well. <laughs> it's like you know, we all know what it's like. Sometimes publishing is is weird. You put these things out there, and you're never quite sure what people think of them. Yeah, you just wait well, to see if people. People seem to tell you, but with articles, they don't. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to thank you again um, for being very generous with your time. Really do appreciate it. And we will hook you back into the BSSH conference in the near future, because uh, much like the zombie movies I love, there's no escape. Uh, so <laughs> thank you very much. Excellent. Jacob, thank you.